Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Ivy. For those of you who were here um, last week, we are in the second week of our series called Last Words. And uh, we're stepping into the book of 2 Timothy and, and the Apostle Paul, just to give you again a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome and he's facing death. It's imminent. It's coming at any time now. And he's saying and giving his final letter, his final words, if you will, to his disciple Timothy, who's been working alongside him for somewhere between 12 to, to 15 years. A young, timid, shy, naturally introverted Timothy who's been given a ton of responsibility in Ephesus. And Paul's writing to him, this vulnerable, this, this warm, this entreating, this, this, this calling letter to his disciple and in a very real way to us as well today. So last week we looked at Paul kind of reminding Timothy, saying, listen, you've got to like, hold fast. You've got to, to, to guard this particular deposit. And we talked about that deposit as being the gospel itself. And we talked about how does he guard that deposit uh, through the rest of that time. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on something a little bit more specific. As, as Paul kind of talks straight at Timothy and says, listen, Timothy, and he looks at us and says the same thing. He says, listen, your call is to be a disciple who makes disciples. A disciple who makes disciples. And so we're going to look at that under three headings this morning. Three questions. What is disciple making? What in the world does that look like, according to Paul? What are disciple makers like? What do they look like? What are the experience like? What are their characteristics? And, and lastly, how do we persevere as disciples who make disciples? So first, what is disciple making? Well, Paul starts off right at the beginning of, of chapter 2 with these words. He says, you then my child. So he's reminding him, listen, you come from me. You then my child. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you remember, chapter 1 ends with all these people, all of basically all of Asia has deserted Paul. I mean, not quite, you know, but a bunch of people from the Asian churches have deserted Paul. And and it's been really difficult for him. And so he's saying, listen, unlike this, you be strong. Like, be strengthened. And don't just be strengthened by being someone who's going to pull up his bootstraps, who's going to be really trying hard and be really good. No, no, he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you know, like that thing I was just telling you about how you guard it. Like that this gospel you're supposed to hang on to that's going to give you life and, and protect you that you're supposed to guard. Now, that very thing, that, that grace that is in Christ Jesus, also known as the gospel, like allow that to be the thing that, that's, that strengthens you when everything else, every other current is pulling towards the other direction. Be strong in the gospel, which is similar to what we saw last week. And then verse two, he comes in and he starts talking about what is disciple making. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy's supposed to do more than just guard the gospel. He's supposed to give it away. He's supposed to share it. He's supposed to, yes, protect it, but he's also supposed to pass it along. And Paul's saying, as he anticipates his death, he's going like, I'm about to go off the scene here, and that leaves you, Timothy. And that leaves you needing to do to others what I have done to you. Namely, to draw you towards that which is most pure, most powerful, most significant, most transformative, and to show you what it looks like to give that away. 
And so Paul says, Timothy, you got, you got to pass this on. And what is he telling him to pass on? He tells him to pass on what? He says, what you have heard from me. What you have heard from me. What he has heard from Paul. What Timothy has heard from Paul, which Paul received from the Lord, coupled with the applications that go with that and the, and the Old Testament understanding of the fulfillment of Christ in the gospel. Not just one sermon, but the totality of the work of Paul towards Timothy. He says, hey, all the ways in which I've pointed you and shown you and you've been alongside with me as I'm writing my letters, trying to help Corinth, who's a flippin' mess, trying to help them get their act together. All of those things, like take all of those things, this corpus of all my teachings and all my trainings that, that come as an understanding of the manifestation of the gospel. All of it, pass that on. All that you've heard from me and all that you've heard, not just from me, but that you've heard publicly, not something that I've, that's hidden, no like special mystic, special sauce to Christianity, no like special thing that no one had heard up until now, and now we really know how it works. No, no. That which has been known in public and established. And he tells them, this is what you hand off, and, and who? To whom? Well, entrust it to faithful men. Plant it into reliable people. Build it into men and women who show themselves to be trustworthy. Put it in, plant it, and trust it to people who show themselves to be trustworthy. Disciple-making disciples is what we're called to do as Christians. It's implied, of course, in the Great Commission. It's the very sending words of Jesus, right? As you go, make disciples, teaching them everything I've taught you. Oh, wait, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's just reiterating the very thing that Jesus told his disciples. Hey, the, you go, as you go out, as you, as you go about your way, you're going to make disciples everywhere you go. So we talk about it. We talk about being trained guys, guides who are, who are drawing people into the fast-moving river, the fast-moving waters of God's purpose and of his power. We're informing, being people that are formed in God's word, has been entrusted to us, people who hear and who respond to God, and we give ourselves away to other people as we give ourselves away to him. So I think the first natural question that emerges out of this moment is, Paul's really clear. The kinds of people that are supposed to be entrusted to are trustworthy, reliable people. And the natural question is, are we that this morning? As you look at your own life, are you someone that is trustworthy, reliable, faithful? Someone who's going to receive that which is planted and, and bear much fruit? And secondly, as you look at the people that are in your life, are the investments that you're investing in going towards those that God has entrusted to you that he's called you to implant that kind of deep truth into? That's the invitation of Paul. Say, we are people who replicate ourselves into other people. One of the, I can't remember who it was that said um, that the, the very nature of disciple making is I don't have everything, but what I have, you can have. And, and my sense of us as we think about disciple making and what that looks like, we naturally think that's something that will happen. First of all, that's something that professionals do, right? So that's my job, apparently. So that, that's a natural thing, right? Or maybe the elders, probably they should do some of that. Missionaries, definitely on them because they're overseas. That's definitely their job. But, but disciple making is actually for like a special group of people. And the scriptures say, no, that's actually for all of us. 
That we are to be disciples who follow Jesus, who in the process invite others to be made disciples. And, and most of us think there's a certain group of information or a certain set of data or certain experience we had to have had before we can give it away. And the reality is that's not at all how it plays out. On the very day after Pentecost, it was, let's go. Let's talk about the things that are true. What do you know today that you didn't know three days ago that God has done? And how can you give that away? We disciple with what we have, what we've been given, and some of you have been given much. And some of you are still young in your faith, or still immature in your faith, and you're in process. The invitation is to be the kind of people that are implanted with the word, implanted by the grace of God. And the kind of people, Paul says, who will be able to teach others. Able to teach others. And again, that's not just for teachers. There's an implication there, by the way. If you are a teacher, like absolutely this must be the case. But, but we are all teachers and trainers. We just had a set of families up here. Like Haley and Hutan, my kids, they're not, y'all aren't teachers. But they're teachers for these three kids. So we're all teachers. Like the people that God gives us that brings into our life. Like we're, we're invited to be the kind of people who hand over the good that God offers us. I always think about the, the imagery of the the Olympic torch piece, right? Like as it gets run from Greece all the way to wherever the Olympics are. And, and they just, they keep passing on that flame, you know? And it's the same flame that leaves, you know, Athens and, Athens, right? Athens and then shows up in whatever, Beijing or LA or whatever, right? It gets handed off. One, and that's actually what we're doing. That's what the call that Paul brings to Timothy. Disciple making is Paul handing it to Timothy. Timothy handing it to reliable people. Faithful people, handing it to other faithful people, and on and on and on. And so I would ask you this question. This is something that would be kind of a reflection for you as you go home today, as you talk about around the, the Mother's Day dinner table, or is, who has discipled you? Who, who has invested into you? How, how have you been trained up? How has someone found you to be reliable and has implanted the word of truth? And, and how is that germinating now in you? How has God loved you and served you and prepared you in those ways? So that's, what is disciple-making? Disciple-making is the handing off of what we have been given faithfully to people who will receive it and begin to give it away as well. Disciple-making disciples, what are they like? Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Actually, Paul talks about it even more later in 2 Timothy. So, so there's a couple things that he brings up that I want to focus on this morning out of this text. This is not exhaustive, okay? So it's not like if, you're, if these three things are true, then everything's perfect. It's not. But let's go with um, what he reveals and shows to us about the kind of people that are trustworthy. What, what are they like? What's some of the factors that make them reliable people to have the word implanted, to have a good deposit given to them? Well, Paul gives three different, um, three different metaphors, if you will. I'm going to spend particularly more time on the first and the third with a little squeeze in the middle on the second one. Uh, the first, he says, is, um, shows up in verse 3 and 4. He says, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the first metaphor he gives is, is the idea of this, this committed soldier. Now, Paul spent a bunch of time with soldiers at this point, right? He spent a bunch of times chained up to soldiers. And so he's gotten to witness what it means, what it looks like, what the experience is like to be a, a soldier. And he draws this picture about what it means to be someone who's going to follow 
a disciple-making pattern. Now, Paul's used military metaphors and other things, right? He talks about principalities and the warfare that goes against the spiritual world as well. He talks about the, the armor, right? The armor of God that both defends you against the evil as well as gives you an opportunity to bring, to bring movement for the gospel into dark places. But here, he's, he's really focusing on something different. It's really a twofold dedication to both suffer and to focus, to suffer and to focus. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Now, no soldier expects to be safe. No soldier expects life to be easy. It comes with the territory. You take on with the role, the responsibilities, the hardships as part and parcel with the soldier's life. I thought the other day about you know, when I was 18 and swearing in for my Air Force enlistment. And um, I was like, what did I say? You know, like I wasn't quite sure. So I, I looked it back, I looked it up. And this, this is what the military swearing in ceremony says, which by the way was surprisingly way more impactful when I watched my son than 20 years, 24 years later do the same thing. I was like, whoa, whoa, this is actually serious, you know? When I was 18, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do all this. Um, but this is what the swearing in ceremony says. He says. It says, I, Matt Miller, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations of the uniform and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. You know what I was struck with when I read that? Is how much it sounds like God. I mean, truly, I was like, wait, wait a minute. So you're swearing allegiance that there's going to be these enemies, there's things that are going to happen, that are coming at you, and, and, and you're going to swear allegiance to this one who has you come and raise your hand and stands in front of you and says, will you swear allegiance? Will you, will you obey like, what things in our world, what, I don't know what job you, maybe you're working for IBM or, or something like that, and it's like, what, what I will obey, con, you know, contract did you sign? Like, I didn't, I didn't sign one, I mean, I did sign one here technically with the elders, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, most jobs, you're not like, yes, I will obey my, you know, like, that's not how it works. This is, this is serious. There's a sense of when Paul's talking about being a soldier that's, it's different. And he's trying to draw that in and say, hey, by the way, it's true of soldiers and it's true of disciples. It's true of disciples. Like soldiers, we have vowed ourselves to our commander, the one that says, the one who has enlisted us. If we're loyal to the gospel, we're going to experience hostility, suffering, difficulty, and mockery. It comes with the territory, assaults. Jesus said, listen, if they're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. But later on in this very letter, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this very clear statement. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There, there is a soldierly warfare nature to the reality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and, and to be the kind of person who's inviting others into this life with him. We are to expect suffering, to expect pushback, to expect adversity, and not to be surprised. And, and sometimes 
or surprised. And Paul's saying, don't be surprised. It comes with being a soldier. So Paul's first emphasis is saying, listen, being a soldier, being a believer means you're going to experience suffering, no doubt about it. But on top of that, he adds, he says, but Paul, he has another emphasis. It seems that there's this necessity to be, to remain focused, to remain focused on the life of the kingdom. It's another tangible aspect of the life of the soldier. In verse four, he says, no soldier gets entangled, he said, in civilian pursuits. Now, just to be clear, as believers, we're supposed to live in the world, right? We're not supposed to, like, go build some commune off far away from everybody where we have our own music and we have our own instruments and we have our own social media. And we, I mean, that does exist at this point. But nonetheless, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be in the world, right? We're supposed to be a part of what's going on here and yet to not be entangled in it. We have regular responsibilities, of work and of home and, of, and to our community as, as citizens. And, and we're supposed to do it, according to the scriptures, like with excellence. I remember Paul, Steve was talking about the, the series on work. Like, we should work like the better than anybody else. Not that we create the best products, but that we give ourselves to our work in a way that reflects our king. Like, that's, that's a tangible, in-the-world kind of dynamic. What he's talking about here is something different. things that's being prohibited by Paul to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus is not is is not participation in secular activities not engagement in the world but entanglement being challenged to be not entangled with the world I, I brought me I kept thinking about uh, that vivid picture that Jesus draws with that um, with the uh, parable of the sower. Remember, the sower sows the seeds, and, and one of the some of the seeds lands, it says, on you know on thorny ground, right, where where there's weeds, and it says that the weeds grow up, and they choke out the word. They choke out the movement of God's good movement in their lives. Jesus interpreted it, says it's the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. That's what he's talking about. They grow up and they just choke out the word, and they make us unfruitful. So you have to remain focused. You can't be entangled by the word. I actually looked up some pictures of entanglement because I was like, what am I thinking of here? And, it, and it, well, some of the pictures had that thing of someone just literally so wrapped with cords that if they pulled one way, it like tightened the other. Like that's what it feels like when you're in, entangled. And entanglement pulls people away from the thing that Paul said is the most significant. You hear in what he says later on in the letter in chapter four, Paul's talking about Demas, who, who he literally com- comments on, commends and uh, in, in, in acts. He's like, he, Demas is one of his boys. He's traveled with them, done ministry. Oh, he's like Timothy. I mean, he's one of Paul's guys. And you get to chapter four of this very letter in Second Timothy, and he says, for, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And I think one thing we can look at that and say, if it happened to Demas, it can happen to me. Loved ones, if it can happen to Demas, it can happen to you. And entanglement is subtle, right? It's like one shoelace tied to another. It's not a big deal. Until it's both shoelaces, and then it's a rope, and then... So, in what ways are you in love with the present world? 
In which ways are you finding yourself currently entangled or the beginning of entanglement in, in your relationships with your stuff? We did, a whole talk, I did a whole sermon on simplicity, to be disentangled from our stuff. Are you entangled in, in politics or comparing your life to other people on social media or entangled in, in your own health? In the health of your kids, in the health of other people in your family, your family members? Are you entangled in your body and its beauty or the absence of it? Are you entangled in your busyness and your hurry and the next experience that you're looking at? Paul's saying one of the things we learn from the soldier is that he's focused, he's not entangled in the other parts of life. And I, what I love is. He gives us, Paul gives us the brief why. Why not be entangled? The end of verse four says, a soldier's not entangled since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So why not be entangled? Oh, it's gonna make your life hard. That's pragmatic. Okay, cool. So don't, don't, don't get entangled. It's gonna make your life really hard. That's not, that's not what Paul says. Hey, listen, you may, you may shipwreck your faith. That's a real thing, and Paul does talk about that, but that's not the reason he gives here. He says, because when you're not entangled and you're able to stay focused on the things of the kingdom, you bring joy and delight to the one who called you into this great story. We've seen probably enlistment ceremonies, and usually it's some officer of some sort standing in front of someone who's enlisting, and you have your hands up, right? They, they, they literally mirror you, and they say, put your hand up, repeat after me. And I think that the piece that maybe is missing from many of our lives is we don't realize that that's exactly what Christ did for us, right? He stood before us, and he said, he said now I, I've, I've rescued you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, now I want you to raise your right hand, because now I have purchased you, as scriptures say, right? You are mine, you belong to me. This is good news. So now, now raise your right hand and, and swear to me as your king, as your sovereign, as your good father, that you're going to belong to me and you're going to live in such a way that fits that. And it's a person. When you get enlisted, you, you, enlist, you, don't, you don't go stare at a flag and raise your hand. No, 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 the flag is behind. That's a real thing, but, but it's a person who's standing for the person. Theoretically, the President of the United States should, you know, should enlist everybody, but that's not what's happening. He has someone standing there in his stead, but that's what you're saying it to, the highest authority in the land. That I want to delight you. I want to please you in light of who you are. Why not be entangled? Because our aim is to please him. And this is why the gospel is so central, because if that hymn rings hollow, if that hymn is like, oh, him, then, then we have to go back to the good deposit, which is the good news of the gospel. It's him. It's him that we're enlisted to. So the first picture is that of a soldier. The second one is of an athlete. Verse five says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That is a weird verse. I mean, right? You put it back up. I, uh, I spent an inordinate amount of time studying this one verse and didn't really get super far. 
See, we, see, it's even confusing in front of the graphic. <laughs> see? I was going to spend a lot of time trying to unpack this. this is, I'm going to read you what I think Paul means in light of what he says in another place about this. And I think it echoes what he's saying about the soldier and what he's saying about the farmer. And so I'm going to read it to you, make a couple comments, and we're going to talk about the farmer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says um, about the athlete. This is talking to Corinth. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Which, by the way, implies that there is a way to run in which you don't obtain it. Right? Run in such a way that you're going to obtain it, he says. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, right? I don't run without focus. I don't run without purpose. I do not box as one beating the air. This is not futility. He says, but I discipline my body. And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The picture of the athlete, the picture of someone who is, being, who is a disciple, who is going to make disciples, a self-controlled, focused, purposed, disciplined man and woman. I think that's, a, and I think that is expanded out and we hit the third point here, which is um, the hardworking farmer. Verse six, what is a disciple maker like? It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's not the only place Paul talks about farmers, but the fundamental principle here is that the Christian life requires hard work, like farming. In the summer of 89, when we moved back from France to the States here, my folks were getting some stuff ready down in Atlanta, and I spent three weeks in Peoria, Illinois, middle of summer, with, at my uncle's farm, working with my cousin, who's about 10 years older than I was at the time. So I was 15, you know, I thought I was in pretty good shape. I played basketball and all that. And then I spent three weeks working on a farm, getting up so early for a 15-year-old, and I mean, chasing cows, baling hay. I mean, we baled, I don't know, 10,000 bales of hay. Oh, and I'm sorry, you're thinking like the machine that does it? No, no, I was on the back catching them, putting them up, throwing them. They'd throw them too far, getting down, picking them up. I mean, it was exhausting. I hardly, I made like a buck 20, I'm sorry, buck 80 when I started. Like, I was like hardly anything left of me, but I was strong. Three weeks, like, it was ex it's honestly the hardest work I've ever had to do. Note to self, my next summer job was lifeguarding, which is the opposite. <laughs> Found something in the middle, you know. Um, farming is unbelievably hard work. I heard someone who grew up in a rural community, a farming community, say that, that they've met um, friendly farmers and they've met mean farmers. They've met educated farmers. They've met uneducated farmers. They've met Republican farmers. They've met Democratic farmers. Democrat farmers. They've met, they've met black farmers. They've met white farmers. They've met Hispanic farmers. But they have never met a lazy farmer. You know why? Because if they're a lazy farmer, they won't be a farmer for long. It's unbelievably difficult work. 
And the idea that our service to the Father is hard work honestly is a little little unpopular in many contexts, maybe even this context for some of us, where the interpretation of the gospel is, is a relaxed, easy life. My Matt, doesn't Jesus say my yoke is easy, like my burden is light? Yes, he does. That is actually correct. But it is a yoke. It is a burden. It's real. It has tangible weight. A burden which we shoulder with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Yes, 100%. Which requires not only focus and sacrifice, but yes, toil. I think one of my, um, I love 2 Samuel after David makes another mess and he comes to the threshing floor to try and bring vindication by, by, by making a sacrifice to the Lord to end a plague. It's a really long story. Go read it in 2 Samuel 24. But David comes up and he ends up getting this, he comes to the man who owns this threshing floor and he needs to make a sacrifice there. A sacrifice for atonement. And the guy's like, just take it. I'll just give it to you. And David says, one of my, I think one of the most powerful lines in Scripture, he says, I will not make sacrifices to God which cost me nothing. And, and I, I, th- I think there's something in the way in which, since I, all of our life's supposed to make it easier, right? Like, we have all these tools and these apps, and everything's supposed to get smoother and easier and, like, less problematic. And, like, that's the trajectory that, the, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution promised to us, that the Enlightenment promised to us. And, like, it ain't happening, right? No, we're trying real hard. We have self-driving cars. Like, did we actually believe that was ever going to be a thing? I don't know that it should be a thing. I'm just saying, did we ever believe it would be a thing? will not make sacrifice, offer sacrifice to my God, which costs me nothing. Norman McLean, in A River Runs Through It, says, um, to my father, all good things, trout, as well as eternal salvation, came by grace. And grace comes by art. And art does not come easy which is just echoing what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. He says, for this, which is the work for the church of Colossae, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is not Aladdin's magic carpet ride with a genie in a bottle that is our God. That's not how it works. That's not the invitation of the gospel. Bishop Riley, who was a 18th century, uh, or not, 19th century um, evangelical Anglican bishop in, uh, in Liverpool, he says it really well about this particular passage. He says, I will never shrink from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself in sowing his field and never looking at them till harvest, as expect a believer to attain much holiness who has not diligently who is not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayer, and his use of the Sundays. Our God, listen, our God is a God who works by means. And he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without them. 
No one says it better than Dallas, though. And I read this quote this week, and I was like, this is... Poof. Dallas says, The enemy in our time is not human capacity or overactivism, but the enemy is passivity. The idea that God has done everything and you can essentially, you are essentially left to be a consumer of the grace of God. And the only thing you have to do is find out how to be a consumer of God, how to do that, and how to do that regularly. I think this is a terrible mistake, Dallas says, and accounts for the withdrawal of active Christians from so many areas of life where they should be present. It also accounts for the lack of spiritual growth, for you can be sure that if you do not act in an advanced fashion consistently and resolutely, you will not grow spiritually. We all know that Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. We need to add, if you do nothing, it will be most assuredly without him. Of course, we must be concerned about works righteousness, which we must be concerned about works righteousness. He says, I, I, I talk a lot about the value of spiritual discipline, but also the dangers of using those spiritual disciplines as if they helped us earn our salvation. But it is crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning Earning is an attitude. Effort is action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see how astonishingly energetic it is. Paul says, take off the old man, put on the new. There is no suggesting that this will be done for you. This is not works righteousness. But, but some of what can creep in with a, even with an emphasis on the gospel is what I would call an overemphasis on the gospel where it is only the thing that comes to us instead of the thing that we participate in. The gospel is not a well, it is a river. We enter it, we work in it, we, we're a part of it. It has power and movement. We're invited to toil, to struggle, to lean in. The Apostle Paul, if you, I mean, if you read the letters from Paul, and, and the other epistles too, but particularly from Paul, like, that dude never quit. And I don't know that there's been someone, maybe there has been, who has been more saturated with the reality of what's true of him in Christ. Like, that dude understood identity in Christ in a way that I'm still only getting glimpses of. And yet he toiled and struggled and worked hard for the kingdom. And I, I think what I, what, I, what I fear for us having come out of, and again, for many of us trying to come out of a works righteousness background or out of a works righteousness, now I believe that God loves me because I've, I'm good, none of that. No, but coming out of that into a place where it's like, cool, so I'll just get my Barca lounger. That's what the rest of my faith is. I'll work hard at work and I'll get some advancement there because that matters, you know, like if I do well, if I work hard, people reward me. But, but in the gospel, it, it's all good. Like, Jesus loves me, this I know. And it's like, yeah, you know, the, the gospel invites us because of what he's done and invites us to pour everything out. After Tim Keller preached a sermon one time on the gospel, which is what he did, um, 
there was a woman who came up to him and she said, if this is true, if the reality of Christ's death, resurrection, of his atonement on our behalf is purchasing us, if this is true, there is nothing he cannot ask of me. And Tim just went on to say, he's like, I think that's one of the most profound understandings I've ever had of someone who was still wrestling to try and get their arms around that. That is correct. There is nothing he cannot ask of you. There's nothing he cannot ask of me. So how do we persevere? If this is the stakes, good grief, how do we persevere as disciple makers? Well, it's twofold. One is we remember Christ Jesus. Verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember his divinity, remember him risen from the dead, and remember his humanity. Remember him as the fulfillment of the promises for you. Timothy, Paul would say, which I would say, loved ones to you. When you're tempted to avoid pain, humiliation, and suffering, or any other forms of the deaths that we experience in our lives or are confronted with, remember Christ Jesus and be strengthened by the grace that is in him. Be strengthened by the way in which he persevered, he endured, he suffered, he stepped towards pain, he spoke the truth, he loved people, he gave himself. Be strengthened by seeing him. Remember him, not just as the one who stood in front of you enlisting in, but the one who stood in front of you with his nail-scarred hand enlisting you into the cruciform gospel Christian faith. That's what he did. Look at my hands, he says to his disciples. Touch my side. This is the true thing about me, and I'm alive. I am risen. So we remember Jesus Christ, and we talked about that a lot last week. But in particular, I think there's something I want to focus on here. He says, we re- not only do we remember Jesus Christ, but we remember Jesus' promises and promise, and we remember his warnings. We see this here in this interesting little poem, if you will, probably a song or a prayer that was sung by the early church. Verse 11, in the beginning of 12, it says, the saying is trustworthy. So this is good stuff. There's also another way of saying that. If you have died with him, I'm sorry, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is another version of if you lose your life, you will gain your life. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. This is Jesus' promise that says, hey, listen, like I, I go and prepare a place for you. Oh, in this life you will have trouble, absolutely. But trust in God, trust also in me. I go and I prepare a place for you and and where I am, there you will be also. And behold, I am with you all the days of your life. We remember the promises of Jesus, true in the gospel because of who he is and what he said. Dying with Christ that's captured here is an identity with the taking up, identical to us, taking up our cross daily and following him. I always have this moment when we're doing a newcomer's event. This has been true over the years, and those of you who've been to these, you remember this. At some point, usually in the newcomer's event, I'm talking about what we believe as a church and what it looks like for us to invite you to live out the gospel. And I say, and this is the marketing technique, and the marketing um, kind of language that I think is most effective, and that is, is come and die. 
But you know, a newcomer's event's really good. It's, it weeds things out real fast. But that's the true thing, right? That's what the gospel, the cent- one of the central messages of the gospel is come and die that you might live. It, it's the story of the gospel. It's the, the actual picture of how God has woven the story. Come and die. Not come and buy, not, not come and get, not come and turn into. No, no, come and, and die that you might live. This promise of Jesus, it says, through the crucified life there is there is true life. So there's this remembering of a promise, but there's also the remembering of a warning. Jesus' warning is captured by Paul here in the second half of verse 12. He says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, it seems a bit harsh. I mean, come on, Paul. Jesus doesn't deny people. <laughs> I mean, right? All are welcome. He accepts everyone. I think this is the tension of the gospel. Because Jesus' actual words are found in Matthew 10, verse 32. He says, So anyone who acknowledges me, Jesus says, before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And, but, whoever denies me before men, I will also, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a warning. And what's fascinating about these warning passages is that it hits people in two, one of two different ways. One is, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this is insecure. Like, my salvation may be lost at any moment if I'm just too, if I'm bad or if I do something wrong or if, like, if I don't even know I did something too badly or too wrongly. If I'm denying him, I don't even realize it. That's one reaction. And the other reaction is by those who go, Lord, please, may I never deny you. Lord, show me, search my heart, David would say, and show me my inward parts. Like, reveal to me any ways in which I am denying you. And the first is one born out of, I don't ever deserve to be denied. And the second one is one that says, it makes sense that I would be denied. Have mercy on me. Show me how I may not be that I may actually found, continue to find favor in your sight. Because I want to be with you. I want to delight the one who enlisted me. It says, if we are faithless, he remains Faithful. Honestly, for the longest time, I thought that that was like, man, check that out. We can be all faithless and stuff, and like, but he, he's going to be faithful anyway. And that is one way to potentially interpret it. And there is some split on what the actual interpretation of this is and from the commentaries. But most commentaries are saying, no, in light of the structure of how it plays out, this is more saying, hey, um, if you're faithless, like he's going to be faithful to who he is. He's going to be faithful to the very warnings he just spoke to. He's going to be true to who he is. It literally ends, for God cannot, he cannot deny himself. Right? Let let God be true and all men are liars. Like, there, there is, there's not another player in the, God cannot deny himself. Dr. William Hendrickson, professor, he says, faithfulness 
on his part means carrying out his threats as well as his promises. And man, that feels really uncomfortable. And yet is so faithful to the totality of the picture of even what we experience, just if you just take just Jesus, it feels and seems to be entirely true. Tolerance is not a scriptural mandate. All are welcome. All are invited. God will not deny himself. So there's the remembering of the promise and the remembering of the warning. But at the end of the day, what these verses are reminding us, the central principle of the kingdom is namely, as John Stott put it, that blessing comes through pain, that fruit through toil, life through death, and glory through suffering. It is the unchanging law of Christian life and service. That's what Paul had to say to Timothy. And I think it's what he has to say to us today. And, 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 and I... <laughs> he says, you've been saved by grace. You've been invited in. He's made a way for you in a way that you never could on your own. You cannot add to your salvation. You cannot make yourself cleaner or more impressive to God. All that you have, all your righteousness belongs to Christ. It is his alone, and, and none, of that's, none of that's changed. That's very and 100% true. In light of that, Paul says, let's be men and women who live like soldiers, who've been enlisted by the king of kings, who give themselves away to people, understanding and not surprised by the difficulties of life, but anticipating them and leaning into them. Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kind. That's how it goes. This is not our home. He's making a home. This is not our home. We're invited to live in it and then to labor, to toil, to give ourselves fully. Loved ones, we will stand before the Lord and he will say, I gave you these things, what did you do with them? This entire year, we've been talking about gifting and, 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 and purpose and calling. Like at the end of the day, that's the story, right? Like I, I, I belong to Christ because of his work, but he has given me things and what must I do with them? What must you do with them? Are, are you toiling with all, all fervor, according to Paul? It doesn't make you righteous. It shows you that you've been made righteous. It shows everyone around you that you belong to him, that you want to delight him, which is precisely what this meal is, right? It's, a, it's a, this meal that is a reminding that we have Christ as our Savior, risen from the dead, who suffered that we might live, who died that we might have life, and that will, one day, we will reign with him. And this way, this meal also invites us, especially in light of what we heard today, to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves. Like, in, in what ways are you moving in a trajectory that looks like denying Jesus? Not like outright, verbally, but with the way in which you're living. This is a moment to be able to, to turn, to return to him. Examine yourself. This is, this is the very context, the very context of grace in which you can take all of your denials, your faithlessness, and bring it to him and say, Lord, I've been unfaithful. 
Lord, I've been denying the reality of what you've done for me in all kinds of ways, and so receive me home. I repent. I give my life to you. I want to re-enlist with you. I want to belong to you once again. It's a table of remembering the promise. It's a table to be reminded of the warning. It's a table to be able to see him once again and to be refreshed by his goodness. And all are welcome. If you belong to him, this is your meal. And it is a good, refreshing, true meal for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the totality of the picture that is true. Thank you for not only just the example of Christ, which we see as one who suffered and died, who endured unbelievable things on our behalf. Thank you for the picture and the imagery of someone like Paul who considered himself the least not only of the apostles, but chief of all sinners and found himself laboring, seeking to give his heart and his life to you. Lord, we want to be men and women who live like that because we see you and know you to be like that. Thank you that we cannot earn a thing, but that you, by your grace, will be able to use your spirit to turn efforts which may be meek and unimpressive into something that can be beautiful and last forever. That's the kind of stuff we want to invest in and be a part of. So find us faithful, we pray in all that we do, in all that we say, how we relate, in a way that brings glory and honor and praise to you. We love you. We pray this in Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your meal. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.